Uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be here, and uh, I'm so grateful that uh, Pastor Ken has invited me to uh, teach this semester. I'm looking forward to our study in the uh, letters of John, um, and uh, I'm glad you're in the class. Uh, please call me Bruce. Uh, I, tell my, uh, I tell my colleagues I need friends a lot more than I need titles, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very serious about that. <laughs> So call me Bruce. Uh, just a little bit about my family. My wife and I have been married 40 years, uh, and she's a little bit younger than I am, I should mention. So if you see her next week, they'll think, boy, she's younger than you are. So I thought I'd just kind of get that out <laughs> in the open. Uh, we have two sons, uh, and I think you know both of them, I think. Uh, our older son, Joel, and his wife, uh, Shelley, are, uh, we've got to use code language. So I'll put it this way. They are in a restricted access nation, and so we refer to them as workers instead of other right. words that we could be using. Come on in. It's good to see you. Yeah. How are you? Fine, thank you. I'm Bruce. Hi, I'm Freya. Freya. Freya, nice yep. to meet you. Freya. And Anita, I'm Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> our kids went to kindergarten to 12th grade together. So yeah. We've got history. We do have history. <laughs> uh, so my, our older son, Joel, and his wife, Shelley, are in a restricted access nation in Central Asia, and they've been there about a year. They're learning the language, making good progress. Uh, Joel teaches English as his tent-making tasking, and uh, he's doing well in that. Um, they are uh, having good success in making, re or establishing what we call redemptive relationships with the national population. And there's two other families that are part of the team where they are serving. Uh, ben and Betsy Ekman, I don't know if you know the Ekmans, and Kevin and Jenny Thompson. Now the exciting thing for us is that Joel and Shelley are expecting their first after being married for seven years. And it is a tremendous answer to prayer. The Lord has been pleased to do that. He, we, we, uh, we praise him if, if that didn't happen. We are thankful that he has done that for them. And uh, my wife and I are um, going over there over the Christmas holiday. Uh, it's a little boy. They got they've named him David Aiden, and he's going to be born right around the middle of November. And so we're going to be over there in December for a couple of weeks. I told my son Joel that's bringing earplugs. <laughs> Hopefully, I'll be able to sleep at night with a little one in the, in the, in the room. Uh, but we're excited about that. Uh, our second son, Jared, and his wife, Sharice, I know it's an unusual name, uh, he just started teaching in our seminary this, this uh, fall. And that's exciting, having my younger son teaching alongside me in our, in our seminary. He's finished writing up his dissertation, uh, and that's a, that's a humongous project. It'll take them at least a year to write research and write that. Uh, they have three children, 
So we have three grandchildren, two boys, a little girl, and uh, one little boy expected in the middle of November. And I, I jokingly say a grandmother is a mother on steroids. <laughs> you, you just don't want to get in between a grandmother and her grandchildren. I mean, it's kind of like Joel will, we Skype with Joel and Shelly, and uh, Joel will say something like, hey, Dad, what do you think about coming over here in, uh, in December? And I'll say something like, well, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> You know, and my uncle said, yeah, while he prays about it, I'm going to go pack our bags. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyway, we're, we're delighted. Uh, the Lord is uh, uh, using our sons and our daughters-in-law in His service and uh, privileged to uh, uh, count them as co-laborers. And uh, just a brief, just a brief uh, explanation about family. Uh, several of you are from a background at inner city, uh, and so uh, I know those that have that kind of background, and uh, we're delighted how the Lord has directed. We uh, miss you, but we rejoice with you that the Lord has opened the door here for very fruitful and effective service. Community Baptist is something of a, I hope this comes out right, Community Baptist is something of a poster child for a church plant in that the Lord has just really blessed and prospered. And just between the two of us, I don't know if I should say this on tape, but yeah. Um, Pastor Ken has a, a, an amazing ability to plug people in where they feel like that's their niche. And God has gifted them to have that kind of ministry if he writes a book, I hope that's the first book he writes, how to get people involved where they are enthusiastic about serving God in the local church. I mean, he does a wonderful job in that. We give, we give the Lord the praise, of course, but uh, I appreciate Pastor Ken so much in that, in that regard. Uh, we pray with you as, as occasion arises, you know, for uh, the land and now paying off the land and the Lord opening a door for property and that, that sort of thing. So uh, uh, although I have not been here before, I feel like I have some kind of kinship with Community Baptist. And uh, again, I'm just delighted to be here. You've got the uh, course outline. We are going to be studying John's letters. Um, I appreciate uh, Eddie Martin uh, getting the dates uh, correct there. Um, November 16th, you'll see that we don't meet. Does, that, does everyone see that on November 16th? I'm actually in a meeting in San Francisco that uh, involves my presenting a paper. It's a, it's a uh, society of people that teach like I teach. And uh, I'm, I'm really uh, almost single-mindedly focused in preparing for that. If the Lord lays that on your heart, you can pray for me as I prepare. But I won't be there, on the, I won't be here on the 16th. Then the 23rd, of course, is Thanksgiving, and we'll be in California for Thanksgiving, visiting family. And then uh, you have the 14th and the 21st, is that correct? Uh, the 14th, I'm in Manila. Uh, I probably shouldn't have said that name. But... Um, 
the, the Lord has opened a door for training house church leaders from China. And we are somewhat restricted in going to that country and teaching the house church leaders. So uh, what we have done is we have brought 20 to 30 of those house church leaders, and these individuals are have incredible ministries in, in China, uh, but they are not part of the government-recognized churches. They are house churches, and I guess you would take, say underground in that regard. And so we've, we've brought them out to a location. Forget I told you the location. But um, uh, they fly in faculty for a one-week session with these men all day long. It's a wonderful time. This will be probably my fourth or fifth time of doing this. But uh, we teach them all day, and then at night, uh, a portion of them will come to where I am, my apartment, and they'll give me their testimonies. And their testimonies are incredible. I mean, absolutely incredible. I'll just give you one example. Uh, each, each class they bring in, they give them new names so that when they go back to China, if one of them gets brought in by the authorities, all he knows is the names that we've given him at that undisclosed location. So we started out with all J's. The first group was all J's. Then J, K, I guess K, J, K, all K's, all L's, all M's, all N's, all O's. Now this is all the P group. So you've got every kind of name that starts with P with this group. Well, in the M group, there's a fellow in there by the name Moses. It wasn't his real name, but that's the name he was given. And uh, he was a um, he was the manager of a printing a printing company in China. And the Lord saved him through a house church ministry. And he recognized that the house churches did not have literature, especially for teaching the young people. And he said, you know, it's illegal for me to print literature. But, you know, I think I, if I print it on my own on the weekends, that wouldn't be a problem. So he began coming in on weekends and printing Christian literature in his the, the company that he was the manager of. Well, somebody turned him in. And the authorities put him in, put him in jail. Uh, he was probably in his uh, 30s at this time. Put him in jail. And he was in jail for, I think, right around uh, nine years for printing Christian literature. And he's told, he, he showed me a picture of, of his wife, but this was his second wife because his first wife died a matter of weeks before he was let out of prison. And I said, you know, I can teach you a lot about the Bible, but you're going to teach me a lot about what it means to serve the Lord and uh, sacrifice and suffer for the cause of Christ. So it's a rewarding ministry, and... Uh, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to do that. But that's where I'll be on the 14th. Then the 21st, my wife and I will be with our son and daughter-in-law in Central Asia. So that's why we have the schedule arranged. And you can see uh, how we're going to be uh, going uh, forward there this evening, the introduction, and then uh, chapter 1. Uh, on page 2, I list certain commentaries 
that, I, you know, there may be some of you here that may want to teach a class in the community Baptist, whether it's adults or whomever, uh, the letters of John. And so I, I just recommend these resources so that if you ever are teaching uh, whomever and you would like to have some good re references, I list them, and then I number those one through five that I think are the five best for uh, studying the John, John's letters and uh, teaching uh, through John. Now that brings us to page three. This way. Now there was a list being passed around. Did that get passed around to everyone? Okay. Oh, is that what the list was for? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's helpful to study the introduction to a particular book in the Bible. The books in the Bible were all written basically in response to a particular set of circumstances. In a sense, the books of the Bible, especially the letters, especially the letters, almost represent a two-way conversation between the writer and the readers. In other words, there's a history there between the writer and the readers, and we're, we're not privy to all that was taking place between the writer and the readers prior to the writing of the letter. So what we do is we study the introduction to a letter like the three letters that John wrote to help us better understand the letter itself. And so by asking certain questions, who was the author, who are the readers, uh, what was the occasion for writing, what was the purpose of John's writing, that helps us better understand uh, the book of the Bible. It just helps us uh, by asking and answering those questions. It gives us a frame of mind and a context to properly interpret the, the, the letter itself. I hope that makes sense. So I'm just going to spend a few minutes. You have the information there, and we want to get to chapter one soon, <laughs> quickly. So you have the issue of authorship, and I give you a lot of information there about authorship. And the reason I do that is that you and I rub shoulders with individuals saved and unsaved as, as well who uh, may be reading articles or books written about the Bible. And as you know, a number of these books and things that are written about the Bible do not believe what you and I believe about the Bible. And so I can say this this evening... The majority, the majority of those writing on uh, the Bible and on John's letters, the majority of those don't hold that the Bible is God's word, inerrant, infallible, divinely authoritative. They don't believe John wrote this letter. They think it was produced by a, 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 a group of disciples of John. Um, so I, I go through the all of the issues, the arguments in favor or against, and then I give my response. I give all that so that if anybody ever comes to you and you have a conversation with somebody and they raise the question, well, I was, I was reading or I've been taught that John didn't write this letter or it wasn't written in the first century. Well, you can have some information that you can uh, say, well, let's, look at, let's sit down and, 
and go through some of the issues here and see if we can uh, answer some of those questions. Let's, I give you a rather uh, complete discussion there about John's authorship. And then on page six, uh, the date and place of writing, uh, I give you information about that, the date and place of writing. So I'm going to ask you to, uh, as you have an opportunity, if you mind reading that all on your own. On page nine, we have the recipient. It's all helpful information. If you would be so kind as to read that between now and next Wednesday, I think that would be very helpful. Let's turn to page 10 and look at the occasion for John's writing. This will really help us understand the letter if we understand the occasion. So I say here, the occasion for the writing, and we're focusing on 1 John, must be pieced together by examining both the internal evidence, that's the evidence from the letter, and external evidence from church history. All right, the internal evidence, the evidence from the letter itself. Why, why did John write this letter? The evidence from the epistle indicates that the overriding occasion for writing 1 John was in response to the threat of false teachers facing the churches. In 2.26, John warns, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Two, the extent and nature of this threat can be seen in John's further references to these individuals. In 2.18, he cautions his readers by saying, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. And then in 4, when he admonishes his readers, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, referring to the prophet and the spirit motivating that prophet. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, test the prophets, to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So John was writing first and foremost, to counter the false teachers who were infiltrating the churches. Page 11. The internal evidence further indicates that these false teachers were at one time associated with the congregations represented by the readers. At some point, however, they had come to embrace heretical beliefs and as a consequence found themselves in conflict with their respective congregations and had to withdraw from the fellowship of the churches. John writes in 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. It is clear from John's warnings above that those who had separated themselves were continuing to teach their false doctrine in an effort to enlist others in their heretical beliefs. Thus, 1 John was written in response to the grave threat this heretical movement posed for John's readers. The nature of this false teaching must be gained from John's statements in the epistle. At the core of this heresy was an, an, a, an erroneous view of the person of Christ. For example, in chapter 2, verse 22, John declares, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. 
from this and other passages in the epistle, it is evident that John is using Christ and Son interchangeably. Thus, to deny Jesus is the Christ means to deny that Jesus is the Son of God, the pre-existent second person of the Trinity. This denial is stated slightly differently in 4, 2, and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now here the denial involves specifically in the Incarnation. Combining the two passages, it is evident that the faulty Christology espoused by the false teachers was nothing less than a denial that the human Jesus and the divine Christ were united in one person. Doctrine error, however, represented only one side of the heresy. John was combating. The false teachers were also guilty of serious moral defections. This may be seen from John's repeated warnings that those who walk in darkness, who do not keep his commandments, and who continually practice sin, are not of God, but are of the devil. Behind these moral deficiencies was a faulty view of sin that denied personal sinfulness. In 1.8, John describes those who deny their own depravity, and in 1.10, those who deny that they commit sins. These denials should not be taken as a claim of sinless perfection. John has in view those who, on the one hand, walk in darkness, they're sinning, and practice sin, and yet, on the other hand, claim that they are neither sinful nor guilty of committing sin. How the false teachers explain their claim is not stated. All that can be said is that John is combating an antinomianism. That's a long word, isn't it? It means those who reject any kind of rule or regulation for the believer. Anti means against, nomia means against law. Now, we'll, we'll come back to this issue, but an antinomian says, as a believer, I'm free to do anything I want as a believer. I'm free to do anything I want. I'm not responsible for any keeping of any laws. I'm forgiven. That's an antinomian. All right. Combating an antinomianism that teaches that sin is not sin and the sinner is not sinful. We'll, we'll get to that this, this evening, Lord willing. John specifically condemns certain ones who are guilty of showing hatred rather than love toward believers. John declares in 2, 9 and 11, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Even more forceful is John's description in chapter 3. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, assuming that John is addressing a single group in these warnings, it may be concluded that those whom John describes as hating believers are the somewhat same ones who are denying the incarnation and who explain away the biblical view of sin. That's the, those are the false teachers that John is combating. I mean, it's a serious problem that John's readers were facing. And that's what prompted John in writing this letter. Now, the heresies, I think you'll find those very, very interesting. But I'm going to let you read those on your own. Let's go to page 13 
And uh, number six, the purpose. We've noted the occasion. There were false teachers who were infiltrating the churches and uh, from outside, not from within. They had been within at one point, but they had separated. But they were infiltrating by trying to influence those within the churches to follow their false teaching. So what is the purpose? <clears throat> John actually records several purpose statements in his epistle. In fact, four times in his letter, John expressly informs the reader why he's writing them. All right? Uh, number one, these things we write so that our joy might be made complete. That's the purpose. Two, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. That's the second purpose. There are these things I've written concerning those who are trying to deceive you. I'm warning. Four, the things I've written to you that believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you may know that you have eternal life. Combining these statements with the occasion for writing, John's purpose appears twofold. The first purpose was to counteract the influence of the false teachers. This purpose is brought out most clearly in, this, in his statement in 2.26 about those who were trying to deceive them, a clear reference to the false teachers. Hand in hand with his first purpose, however, is John's second purpose, his desire to secure his readers in the truth. The second, the second purpose is brought out in his statement in 2.1 about his exhorting them not to sin and his statement in 5.13 about providing his readers assurance of their salvation. Now John accomplishes both purposes by giving his readers a series of tests. Tests of eternal life by which they might identify the false teachers and at the same time gain assurance of their own salvation. So if you were to ask me, what's the theme of 1 John? How, how do I understand how 1 John fits together? How does John develop his, his, uh, his argument? Well, the theme of 1 John is the tests, the tests of eternal life. He's giving a series of tests how the readers might know that they have eternal life, and also these tests are also able to expose the false teachers and the fact they don't have eternal life. So we should understand 1 John as a series of tests of eternal life. And John anticipates that his readers will read this letter, identify those tests of eternal life, examine themselves to see how they are measuring up, and gain assurance of their salvation as they see the fact that in fact the Spirit of God and the Word of God are working in them and by God's grace they are measuring up to the tests of eternal life. All right? So I, I, uh, the last uh, three or four lines under small b, the same test used to expose false teachers are the test used to identify genuine believers. John's intent in providing these tests is to ground the readers in the truth and to equip them to combat the false teachers and to exhort them to God and living. I'll let you read the structure on your own because we do want to get to 1 John. So let's uh, begin now in verse 15. So John is giving us a series of tests, biblical tests 
of eternal life, those who pass the tests can have assurance of their salvation. Those who fail the test give evidence that they are not saved. Keep in mind, keep in mind, John's purpose in writing is to give his readers assurance of their salvation. Keep that in mind. So these tests are designed to give us, as the readers also now, assurance of our salvation. At the same time, as John identifies these tests, those same tests also exhort us. We read those tests, and by God's grace, we see that we're measuring up. That gives us assurance. But these tests also exhort us. Here's what those who have eternal life look like. Well, I want to look like that. So, they give us assurance, but they also exhort us. That's the design John has intended. All right. Outline and commentary. John establishes his overall theme in 5.13 as the assurance and specifically, assurance of eternal life or salvation. He develops this theme through a series of tests. Tests in the area of belief and conduct that are consistent with one who has eternal life. The intent is that his readers would examine themselves and gain assurance as they see the evidence of eternal life in their own lives and by this be able to recognize and combat the influence of false teachers. I would say that the day we're living in is as dangerous in terms of false teaching as the day that John was living in. I already mentioned to you that the majority of those writing on the Bible don't believe what you and I believe about the Bible. So false teaching is a threat that you and I face. And God has given us this letter, specifically 1 John, to uh, equip us and to arm us, to ground us in the truth, to give assurance of salvation, and to be able to answer those who are teaching what is in conflict with God's Word. So it's a very helpful book, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. All right, John's prologue. Uh, John accomplishes three things. That's chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. John accomplishes three things in these verses. First, he establishes his, his credentials as an apostolic eyewitness to the gospel. As an apostolic eyewitness, his proclamation of the message of the gospel is not only accurate and trustworthy, he is an eyewitness after all, but divinely authoritative. He is an apostle. Second, he gives the essence of his message, namely that eternal life has been made manifest in the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. The prologue emphasizes the reality of the incarnation as the hallmark of the apostolic message and experience. But third, John gives a preliminary identification of the purpose. His intent in recounting the specifics of the apostolic message, rehearsing the apostolic truth, is to confirm his readers in their fellowship with the apostles and especially in their fellowship, that is, in their saving relationship with the triune God. Now, it's important for us to understand what John means by fellowship, especially as we read chapter 1 of 1 John. So I say here, fellowship, I'm adding notes now that you don't have. Fellowship means to share in something or to have something in common. 
So the word fellowship in the, in the letter that John is writing here means that people share something or have something in common. That's the, that's the essence of the word fellowship. All right? Let's go on. Let me give you one more thought here, then I'll come back to this. In 1 John, fellowship means sharing or participating in the life of God that is a sharing and eternal life. So when John mentions fellowship in his first chapter, he's talking about the readers sharing with the other apostles and with the Father eternal life. He's talking about fellowship meaning sharing eternal life. So we should not think of fellowship in 1 John as is perhaps commonly thought of. We think of fellowship as one who has a very close relationship with somebody else. And if something happens, you can fall out of fellowship and you don't have that close relationship. Do you understand that use of the word fellowship? Danita and I can have, or Eddie and I can have close fellowship, or because of my cantankerous spirit, our fellowship may be broken. That's not what John means by fellowship. He's talking about eternal life. That's not something you can break. That's not something you can lose. It's something you either have or you don't have. Do you understand the point I'm making? So fellowship in 1 John talks about sharing eternal life. It doesn't mean a close relationship or a, a, a hindered relationship. It's talking about sharing eternal life. That's so very important as we go through chapter 1. All right, let's read. Uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, 1 through 4 is the prologue. It's, it's introduction to the letter. And the prologue really sounds challenging. I mean, you read that and you say, what on earth, John, are you talking about? <laughs> so let's read. You follow as I read. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have, what we have seen with our, own, with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Well, I hope I can clarify a bit what John is saying. So let's take a look at my notes. John's message centers on the word of life. A reference to Jesus as the revelation of the Father. That's what the word word means. When he talks about Christ being the word of life, that word word means that Christ is a revelation. He is a communication of truth from the Father. He is the Word. Alright? So, to call Jesus the Word of life is a reference to Jesus as the revelation of the Father, but also as the source of eternal life. He is the revelation of life, of eternal life. John declares that this Word, which existed from the beginning of creation, became incarnate that is, took upon himself humanity. So look again at verse 1. What was from the beginning? Well, that sounds like uh, John's Gospel, doesn't it? In the beginning, was. So to say something was in the beginning means it was in existence at the very beginning. It didn't have a beginning. 
And then to say that that which was with the Father in the beginning was revealed to us. Well, he's talking about now a member of the Godhead existing before creation, taking upon himself humanity. He was revealed to us. We saw him. We heard him. We even touched him. Now, he's talking about the incarnation. It's, a, it's, a, it's one that kind of... Boy, my head hurts when I think about that. Here is the Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, fully God, taking upon himself humanity. There's one person with two natures. And we can't confuse the natures, nor can we divide the person. He is one person. He has two natures. That's the incarnation. And the scriptures clearly teach us that he took upon himself humanity for the very purpose of dying in our place. God can't die. God is spirit. God cannot die. Our Lord took upon himself humanity for the very purpose of dying in our place. John is talking about the incarnation. Let's go on. John, along with the other apostles, were eyewitnesses to the incarnation, having heard him speak, having seen and observed him with their own eyes, having actually touched him with their hands. John affirms that this word is the source of eternal life and was intended, it was indeed manifested or revealed in human form. Having seen this manifestation, he and the other apostles were proclaiming the message of eternal life. Specifically, John testifies that this life resides in him who was with the Father in eternity past and who was revealed to them in the incarnation. That's verses 1 and 2. By the way, feel free to ask questions. I know it's somewhat, maybe a little intimidating in the first class, but uh, you know, once you get to know me and I get to know you, please feel free to ask questions. And uh, your questions are the ones that others are thinking about and are glad that you ask. All right, so be sure to ask questions. All right, now let's look at verses 3 and 4. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. All right, the purpose of uh, the apostolic message, of John's message. This word of life has been manifested in human form, John writes. The fact that John and the other apostles had both seen and heard was the very essence of the message that he and the others were proclaiming. Eternal life had become incarnate. And that fact was the very essence of John's message and the other apostles. The purpose of their proclamation, John declares, was that his readers might be confirmed in their fellowship with the apostles. Let's take a look at verse 3. And the life was manifested... And we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was uh, with the Father and was manifested to us. Now notice verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship. The word have there has the idea of continue to have. 
And it carries the, the thought of that you might be confirmed in your fellowship. So John isn't saying, I'm writing these things so that you might become to have or begin to have. He's saying that you might continue to enjoy that is be confirmed in your fellowship with us and with God. That's what John is saying. That's the word have. All right? Readers might be confirmed in their fellowship with the apostle. However, this fellowship was nothing, nothing less than a sharing in the eternal life that the word provided. Therefore, having fellowship with John and the other apostles necessarily meant having fellowship with the Father and with the Word, that is, his Son. John was also proclaiming this message about the Word so that the readers being confirmed in their fellowship, that is, sharing an eternal life, confirming that fact, John and the others might have fullness of joy. Now, as I read verse 4, here's what I would have expected John to have written. These things we write to you so that your joy might be made complete. He wants to write and give them assurance so that they might have full joy. But John doesn't write that, does he? He says, these things we write to you so that our joy. Well, why does John write our joy? Well, look at uh, 3 John. Look at there. It's a familiar passage. Look at 3 John and uh, verse 4. Turn to 3 John and verse 4. John writes, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. So John is writing these things to ground his readers in the truth, because John has no greater joy than the fact that those under his care are walking in the truth. I'm sure if I asked Pastor Ken this evening, what brings you the greatest joy about those at Community Baptist Church? I'm sure he would echo these words. His greatest joy for the members of Community Baptist Church is that they would walk in the truth. You know, that's my greatest joy as a dad. I want my children to walk in, I want my grandchildren to walk in the truth. So John is saying, I'm writing these things that my joy might be complete because by writing these things and grounding you in the truth, you will walk in the truth. You will walk in the truth. All right? So that's John's prologue. He's focusing our attention on the Son of God existing with the Father before creation, but entering in creation by taking himself humanity. Of course, we know about the birth of our Lord to the Virgin Mary. And what was born of Mary is the incarnate. It is the God-man who is the source of eternal life. Whoever has fellowship with him through the gospel shares in that eternal life. All right. That's the prologue. Do you have any thoughts or questions? Let's step back for just a moment and address the issue of assurance. Have you ever asked yourself the question, well, how can I have assurance? What's the basis of assurance? How do I know I'm saved? What is the base of assurance? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because <laughs> I want to try to answer it. John's desire, and these are notes that I'm adding, so you're welcome to take them down. Uh, John's desire that his readers be confirmed in their fellowship with God 
addresses the issue of assurance of salvation. Scripture identifies two related bases that are the foundation for assurance. Two bases that are the foundation for assurance. The first basis we call is an objective basis. An objective basis. Well, what is that basis? The objective basis is found in the promise of the gospel. The gospel promises eternal life to all who exercise repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their only Savior, John 3.16. And we call that the objective basis. That's something that the scriptures teach as a fact. All who respond in repentant faith to the gospel have eternal life. Well, that's the, that's the objective basis uh, of, of, of assurance. God has promised all who believe the gospel have eternal life. That's the objective basis. It's something that God has revealed in his word as a promise. The question then is raised, <laughs> well, how do I know that my faith is genuine faith? How do I know that I have repented and put my faith in Jesus Christ the Lord as my only Savior? Now we come to what we call the subjective basis. All right? The objective basis is the gospel, the promise of God. can't get much more objective than that. But there's a subjective basis. The, the, the second basis for assurance is subjective. The subjective basis involves both the internal witness of the Spirit... Romans 8, 16. The internal witness of the Spirit. What does Paul write in Romans 8, 16? The Spirit testifies with my spirit that I am a child of God. We call that the internal witness. Do you understand why I'm saying that's a subjective basis for assurance? It's not a voice I hear, is it? It's just the work of the Spirit mysteriously giving me assurance. The Spirit testifies with my spirit I am a child of God, Romans 8.16. I say both, the internal witness of the Spirit, and now we come to the uh, uh, somewhat controversial, <clears throat> and the believers persevering in the faith, and in faithfulness to God's Word, expressed in good works. So, there really is a twofold subjective basis. There is the internal witness of the Spirit, and there's my persevering in the faith and in faithfulness. <clears throat> I hope that's not a strange thought. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 3, verse 14, that every true believer will persevere in the faith. And that being, that being true, you and I can say, well, the scriptures teach us that every true believer will persevere in the faith, and we would say every true believer must persevere in the faith. <clears throat> but the scriptures also tell us that a true believer will persevere in faithfulness to God, a measure, some measure, some measure of faithfulness to God, God's word, as evidence in good works. Why do I say that? Well, James tells me in chapter 2, verse 14 that a faith without works is not a saving faith. Now, now please follow me here. This is critical. <clears throat> These works are not a condition for salvation. They are not. Salvation is on the basis of grace alone, 
through faith alone, in the person of Christ alone. But these works, according to James, are evidence of salvation and necessary. Some, some measure of good works are part of the assurance of salvation. So the objective basis, the promise of the gospel. The subjective basis, the internal witness of the Spirit, and the believers persevering in faith and in faithfulness. <clears throat> what was the scripture reference in Hebrews that you mentioned? 3.14. I had a friend. Question? He's talking about Peter. Yeah, about how well Peter persevered. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. You've asked a good question. Let's, let's think about that. The scriptures teach us that every true believer must persevere in the faith. Peter denied the Lord. Does that mean that Peter did not persevere in the faith? Because the scripture says every true believer must persevere. Here's how I understand it. Peter denied the Lord with his lips. Now follow this, please. He was not denying the Lord in his heart. He was not. And persevering in the faith involves the heart, not, not the lips. So Peter was still persevering in the faith in his heart. He was denying with his lips so that he wouldn't risk his life. So he was persevering in the faith. Let me give you an illustration. I've got this friend, friend Mark. <clears throat> Had a friend, Mark. <laughs> he and I went to school together, <coughs> seminary. He grew up in a Christian home went to a Christian college. He and I ended up in seminary together and uh, pursuing vocational ministry. Uh, good friend, good friend, close friend. Well, he decided that uh, he wanted to uh, pursue counseling. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But he was influenced by some of the faculty where we were going to school to go to Europe and get a doctor's degree in clinical psychology. Again, nothing, nothing necessarily wrong with that. He went to the Jungian Institute in Zurich. And uh, I'm sure the Jungian Institute can tell you a lot about psychology, but they really were enemies of the gospel, enemies of God's word. So after he pursued that for a number of years and got his doctorate, he came back and he and I had dinner one, one evening. And he looked me right in the eye and he says, you know, <clears throat> there was a time in my life where I believed the gospel. But he says, I've grown beyond that. I've laid that aside. That was kind of a crutch when I was a child. But now I'm a, an adult and I no longer believe the gospel. Now, how do I respond to that? Well, I would say this, and I, and I, and I say it with a, <laughs> maybe you think, too much confidence. I would say that the evidence, since he did, did not persevere, and that was from the heart, that he was never saved to begin with. Never saved to begin with. The scriptures teach that every true believer will persevere in faith, and therefore must persevere in faith. And we have warnings in the scriptures that warn us about that. And the Spirit of God uses those warnings to provoke true believers to persevere. It's the means that God uses to accomplish His purpose, our persevering. All right? 
I conclude, the internal witness of the Spirit is essentially linked to the perseverance of believers, particularly perseverance in good works, in obedience to God's words. What am I saying there? When does the Spirit testify to my spirit that I'm a child of God? Does he do that when I'm in sin against God? I don't think so. I don't think so. He does that when I'm in humble obedience to God, confessing sin, asking God for wisdom, strength, endeavoring to serve him. It's when I'm obeying the word of God is when the spirit of God is testifying, you are a child of God. Uh, can you and I have assurance of salvation? Absolutely. Absolutely. Based on the objective promise of the gospel and the subjective working of God's spirit and word in our persevering we have all of the evidence the scriptures tell us to give us full confidence that you and I are the children of God. And God wants us to have that. He wants us to have that kind of confidence. Do um, you have any questions about what we've gone through? Do you have any questions? All right. Did I put you all to sleep yet? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> yeah. Or else no one's saying. Uh, I do want you, we're almost finished here. Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, I'm probably going to park it here uh, tonight. Uh, I would like to have you read the notes up to this point, if you would be so kind to do that. Uh, I can look into the eye this evening and say, those notes are absolutely fascinating. But having said that, don't read them late at night. <laughs> and above all, please, please, don't read them near an open flame. Oh. <laughs> they are fascinating. Um, there was something else I wanted to bring up. I it just uh, escaped my mind uh, on the issue of assurance. But uh, perhaps. Through the Spirit would be a uh, one of those subjective bases. Oh, I know what I want to do. You may ask me this evening, well, what is a good work? What is a good work? Mm-hmm. Here's my definition of a good work, based on James again. A good work is anything that you and I do in obedience to God and His Word, so obedience to God's Word, Motivated by faith and love toward God. I'll say that again. A good work is anything that you and I do in obedience to God's word. We're believers, so anything a believer does in obedience to God's word, motivated out of faith and love toward God. Let me use Abraham as an illustration. Genesis 22 is held up by James as a classic example of a good work. Abraham was... Uh, confirmed in his justification by his offering Isaac. So we can ask the question, well, why on earth would Abraham offer Isaac? I mean, think about it. (laughs) That's almost counterintuitive. Why why would you offer Isaac? God commanded him. Remember my definition, anything you and I do in obedience to God. It means God's word. Well, didn't he love Isaac? Oh my. It says that he loved Isaac. That was the son of the promise. 
He loved Isaac. Well, then why would he offer Isaac? Well, the answer must be he loved God more. He loved God more. In fact, in Genesis 22, that's what the Lord says. Now I know that you love me. You, you, you were going to sacrifice your only son. But the Word of God also tells us that Abraham was motivated by faith. He was absolutely convinced because Isaac was the son through whom all the promises were going to be fulfilled. Abraham was absolutely convinced that if he were to offer Isaac, God would have to raise him up to fulfill those promises. So we can say Abraham was motivated by faith in God. So a good work is anything that you and I do in obedience to God's word, motivated out of faith and love toward God. That is a good work. That is a good work. All right? I hope that helps. I'm, I'm getting a hug here, so uh, <laughs> I'm glad you're in the class. Uh, we'll get a little more relaxed as we go through. I know this first class is always a little stiff and formal. But uh, I'm going to tell my wife, you all wore uh, uh, comfortable clothing, and the guys wore their uh, biker jackets. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I hope she'll, she'll be here next week. We'll see you then.